I'm excited to be uh, uh, involved in teaching this series. We've had some of our young guys teaching this last month. It's so much fun to watch them um, uh, uh, study God's word and then come and present what God's teaching them and hone their skills in uh, teaching, preaching as they are studying to be ministers. It's one of the, I think it's one of the great joys of my role in this church is to raise up young pastors uh, who are maybe 10, 15 years behind me and remembering those days in my own ministry journey uh, where I was given opportunities to teach and preach and begin to practice using my gifts in a way that might edify the body of Christ and I stumbled and bumbled and and, uh, didn't do it as well as these guys are doing it but those opportunities were vital for my own growth and really stepping into the calling that God had given me and so I love that our church takes space in the summer Uh, it's part of a preaching cohort and uh, these guys are uh, learning their craft as uh, men who will one day man pulpits of faithful gospel preaching churches. And so I love the encouragement that we can give them as a body, as well as, of course, continue to learn uh, under their teaching. Because whenever God's word goes forth, we believe that it's not going to return void. And it's not about the personality of the preacher, uh, but the weight and the glory and the truth of God's word. And so we'll rest in that. Well, we're continuing the sermon series in, uh, on the shepherd king. This is in the life of David. And I've got a great chapter. I was really blessed where the, uh, where the lines fell for the teaching series. Um, this uh, chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 9, is where I'll be. I would say it's, it's certainly one of my favorite chapters in the entire Samuels in the life of David. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And so if you would be able to stand with me, I'm going to read this in full, 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1 through 13. This is our text this morning. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodibar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodibar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will, show you the ki- I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I'll restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. 
And all who lived in Zeba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is the word of God for the people of God. And the people of God said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the lucid reminder it gives us of our lowly estate before you and your grace and mercy bestowed upon us and its effect on our life, um, Lord, now and eternally. And so, Lord, I pray that you would uh, burn this picture of a uh, man crippled in both feet, called by your grace to sit at your table and fellowship with you forever. I pray that you'd etch it into our hearts and minds and you teach us through it. You'd show us as in a mirror what you have done for us and that we would walk away from this text changed, full of gratitude and great hope and, um, and just nourished by your love. And so God, I pray your scripture would indeed go forth and not return back void. I must decrease and you, Lord Jesus, must increase. It's in your name I pray, amen. Okay, so chapter nine uh, is, is, um, takes place in the course of David's life where, of course, Saul is dead. Um, David is king. And uh, David has defeated the Philistines, not just the uh, conquering of Goliath, but he has defeated the Philistines in full at this point. He has marched the ark back to Jerusalem uh, from the Philistine camp, and he has uh, brought it back with singing and laughter and dancing. And, um, and the people of God are uh, now unified as a kingdom. For a while, there was a little sect under Ishbosheth, tough names. That um, because he was one of Saul's sons, saying that he should be the rightful king. But now that is over. Now uh, they are uh, rallied under the kingdom is united under David, and uh, this is the beginning of Camelot for Israel. This is the beginning of a great rule and reign of their greatest king, who would be a type of Christ, a picture of Christ, um, a, a picture of even a greater king to come. And we heard about it last week that God made a covenant with him. He wanted to build a house for God. God said, "No, I'm going to build my house through you." And a descendant of yours will sit upon my throne forever and ever. There's a greater David coming. And that's what the Jews are looking for. They look for a Messiah. Where is the one who will sit on the Davidic throne and reign, whose reign will never end? And we believe it's true. We believe that that reign has been inaugurated through Christ's resurrection from the dead and will be culminated when he comes again to reign forever and ever. He is the greater David. And so where the story sits in our text in David's life is... He's united the kingdom. In chapter 8, the chapter right before this, he has gone and conquered the enemies to the north, east, south, and west. He has enlarged the territory of the kingdom. He's pushing forth its boundaries. And then in the chapter that's going to come after chapter 9, chapter 10, he's going to take on the, the feared king of the Ammonites, and he's going to take them out. And so it's this story. We're now in the story of David's conquest where uh, the text is displaying his might and his glory as a king. Uh, is a military presence, uh, that he is, he's mighty, he's the sovereign king, no one can stand against him. And yet tucked in between these stories of great might and conquest is an interesting story, the one we just read about a little boy with crippled feet. And again, it's one of my favorite stories. You could lose this story, you could take this chapter out and you wouldn't miss any of the chronology of the story of the expansion of David's kingdom. You wouldn't miss a thing. You wouldn't miss anything on David's might, um, uh, the, his presence, his sovereignty, his justice, his rule. Wouldn't miss a thing. But what you would miss would be an unbelievable glimpse 
at David's heart. And remembering that David is a shadow of the substance that will come in Christ, remembering that he is the lesser king who points to a greater king, should you lose this chapter, you would not merely miss a glimpse at David's heart. You would miss a glimpse at the very heart of God. And so that's what we're going to see in this chapter. It's going to be a parallel track. What's happening between David and this crippled boy is what's happened or happening between the Lord God and you, his people. So we're going to see it on a parallel track this morning. Chapter 9, verse 1. And David said, here in the midst of his conquest, united kingdom, pushing back borders, he stops, he pauses. Is there anyone still left? of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. This is a, a rich verse packed with um, uh, uh, interesting insights. First of all, that David wants to stop in the midst of his military conquest. He's not a king that comes bent on conquest. He's not a king that's merely interested in his own glory and uh, lifting or exalting up himself. He stops and says, how might I use my position and platform to exalt someone else? Is there someone left in the house of Saul that I might show kindness? That word kindness is the word. We've talked about this word. It comes up quite often in the text. Chesed. That's how you got to say it in the Hebrew. All right, you got you to cough something up a little bit right there. Chesed. All right, if you're a good Chesedic Jew, Hasidic Jew, you will know how to say this. This is a, the loyal love of God or the loving kindness of God. The best word we have is grace. David is saying, I want to show grace to somebody. Grace would be unmerited favor. It's something undeserved. David wants to give grace to someone who's undeserving to receive it. And so he says, is there anyone left in the house of Saul? Now again, Saul is the conquered king. He's the dead king. His line has ended. It has been condemned. Saul's kingdom is, is finished. If you were in Saul's lineage and hoping to receive uh, as an heir, a kingdom, uh, that hope is lost. Matter of fact, the way it worked in that day, in that culture, is when a new king came to reign, he would uh, dispense of, he would get rid of any heirs of the previous throne because you don't want them to ever come calling and start and, and, and lift their hand in a coup against you and try to claim the throne that might have been rightfully theirs. So you kill them. You get rid of them. You make sure that that'll never be an issue. David does something that's so out of the ordinary. He's not trying to get rid of the house of Saul and uh, completely uh, eradicate them from the face of the earth. He's saying, is there anyone left out there from that house that, that house that I may exalt them? So understand this about the house of Saul. They are condemned. They are at this point considered worthless. They are dead. And yet, he wants to take one who is dead and resurrect him to life. He wants to take one who is old and make him new again. He wants to bring one out of the darkness and bring him into the light and give him a seat at the table. David's looking to show grace to one who's in the condemned line of Saul. And that would be the loving kindness. And by the way, verse three, I need to just give it to you now. We'll, we'll come back to one. He says it this way in verse three, is there not still someone left of the house of Saul that I may show him the kindness of God? He's saying it's not just my kindness, it's the kindness of God. I want to do for someone else the way God has done me. Do you see that? He's going to interpret his action through the lens of how God treats us. 
someone of the line of Saul would at this point be an enemy of the state, an enemy of the king. I want to take an enemy of mine and I want to exalt him. I want to raise him up. I want to show my enemy grace. Do you see this? And I want to do it, did you see, for Jonathan's sake. Now understand back in 1 Samuel chapter 20, Jonathan and David, who were the best of friends, uh, uh, it says their souls were knitted together. And uh, it said Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. When we're called to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, a great picture of that is the way Jonathan loved David. And David loved Jonathan. And before Jonathan died, he and David made a covenant with one another. And they said, whichever one of us lives longer than the other one, let's make a covenant to one another. We'll always show favor to the other one's children. Now, Jonathan knew David would outlive him. He said explicitly, when I'm dead, you will still be reigning on the throne. God has given you the kingdom. Jonathan's the prince. He's Saul's son. He's the rightful heir in way of, uh, of man's thinking and lineage, and yet he knows by way of the prophet Samuel, the anointing has come on David. Jonathan says, who am I to stand in the way of God? He has anointed you, not me. I may be the prince by blood, but you're the true and rightful heir to the throne. And when I'm dead, which will happen, swear to me that you'll show your loving kindness to my descendants. And then, and, and David gives him his oath. And then Jonathan goes all the way to the end. And I can't tell the whole story, but he goes all the way to the end in faithfulness to David. Uh, through thick and thin, he'll put his neck out. There'll be attempts on his life. He'll ultimately die in battle, serving faithfully his father, and serving faithfully the true King David. Jonathan is faithful to the very end of his life. Jonathan is one of those few men in scripture that you look at and you cannot find fault in him. Jonathan is a type of Christ. He is the prince who lays aside his glory so that those who come after him may be blessed by his sacrifice. You understand? David says, I want to find someone undeserving who's an enemy of the state, and I want to exalt him because of my love for Jonathan, the faithful prince in whom there is no fault, who loved me to the end. Are you seeing the parallel here? Are you seeing the track we're running on one verse in? Is there someone left in the house of Saul, that's the enemy, that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? He want, By the way, you see Theologically, you see anyone in the house of Saul, that would mean imputed upon you would be what's true of Saul, condemnation. Is there anyone who is condemned that I may show favor for Jonathan? Jonathan, what is true of him? Righteous, without fault, faithful to the end. I want to take one in the line of the condemned and by virtue of Yeho Nathan, the gift of God, the one that comes through his line, I want to raise up and bless. I want to take one who has been imputed to him condemnation, and I want to see imputed to him righteousness because of the blood sacrifice of the one who is faithful. All right, that's a pretty good verse to start off the chapter, okay? Now, verse 2, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. It's hard being a Memphian and not reading Zebo into this text. That's how I picture Ziba with a little headband on. 
and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he says, I'm your servant. And the king said, this is David speaking, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God? Again, interpreting his action, not um, uh, merely is, is what he uh, wants to do, but what he ought to do because he's been given mercy. How can he not be merciful? How can he not do someone as God has done him? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan, meaning there's one out there. There's one, and by the way, I think David would know this. David and Jonathan were best buds. I think David knows Jonathan's sons, and I think he knows that here he is, the kingdom's expanding, he's remembering his oath to Jonathan, and he's thinking, there's someone missing. There's someone out there that it's kind of like the uh, Home Alone, when the, when the gal gets on the plane, Kevin's mom, and she's like, okay, there's all the kids, you know, and she's like, all right, we're ready to go. She holds her husband's hand. He's like, we're ready to go. We're finally off. She goes, I feel like someone's missing. And he's like, oh, it's okay, sweetheart. It's fine. And she's like, okay. Kevin! You know, I think David's going, the kingdom's expanding. Uh, God's hand is on and we can't lose. And there's someone missing. Zebas, there's someone out there. Well, there is a son of Jonathan out there. David's like, okay, I knew it. There's the one lost sheep. And even though 99 are in the fold, I made a promise. I made an oath to Jonathan. I'm going to go after him. And Ziba adds, he's crippled in his feet. You know, this is really interesting. Um, it's such a, he doesn't just answer the question. Yeah, there's a son of Jonathan out there. You made this oath, this covenant. But this son of Jonathan, there's something about him um, he, that you need to know, David, he's crippled. And I think he would say this for, for several reasons. One is, uh, if we, we know the story from just a few chapters earlier, chapter four, that, um, that Mephibosheth is his name. Everybody say that together? Mephibosheth, all right. That's his name, and we see that when he was five years old, the day of battle where both Saul and Jonathan were killed by the Philistines, that day when the word came to the maidservant who was caring for Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth, this little boy who is grandson of the king, son of the prince, in the line of the throne, the maidservant in her haste picked him up to run so that they would not be killed when Saul and Jonathan had been killed and she dropped him and he fell. And when he fell, he was crippled in both feet. You talk about the result of the fall. Here, Mephibosheth had not only lost his lineage, he was not only went from the house of the king to the house of the condemned. He would not only be the forsaken lost grandson who now is an enemy of the state, who's an enemy of the true king. Not only had he lost his estate, but now his very nature was fallen. He's crippled in both his feet. So there's a son of Jonathan who has fallen in his estate, who is crippled in both of his feet. And Ziba says, hey, there's one out there, but he's crippled, he's lame. The idea is he's helpless. And by the way, why is Ziba bringing forth this little tidbit of information? 
You know, the truth is, I think Ziba and his intentions will become more and more clear as the story goes on. I think he knows that, that David's going to give, he wants to bestow favor out of the bounty of his goodness. He's not just a righteous and just king, he's a good king. And he want, he's looking for someone to show favor to. And there's this guy, Mephibosheth, who's Jonathan's son, but, but he's worthless. He's crippled. He, even if you bestow grace upon him, he can't do anything for you. Even if you give him land, he can't even work the land. So he lets him know, he's crippled. In other words, I'm a candidate. Like if you can't give it to him, you could get, I'm a servant of the house of Saul, not a son, but I'm a servant. I think Ziba's looking for what's been promised to, John, uh, to Jonathan's line. And, uh, and the idea is that Mephibosheth is helpless and that he's crippled in both feet. He can't work. Um, he, he's completely unalterably impaired, fallen in his estate, fallen in his nature. Does that sound familiar, by the way? And he's got to do life that way, helpless and hopeless. And he's not only helpless, and he's not only hopeless, look where he is. It says, David asked, where is he? And Ziba said, he's in the house of Matur, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. <laughs> Lodibar is on the outskirts of the kingdom. It's even beyond the boundaries of the kingdom. Lodibar is up near the Ammonites. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's east of the Jordan. It's so far away, it would be just considered wilderness. It would be considered desert. It is outside of the goodness of the bounds of the kingdom. It's darkness. It's just pagan, it's heathen. And the idea in the text, which is true in the text, it's, it's as far away from Jerusalem as you can possibly get. He's as far away from the king as he can possibly get. He's out there, why? Well, he was in Saul's line. Saul's been killed, there's a new king. What does a new king do to the lineage of Saul? You kill them. So he's in hiding, he's afraid, he's terrified, he's lonely, he's helpless, he's hopeless, and he's lost. This would be like David being in Memphis and Mephibosheth in Anchorage. He's just other. He's so, Ziba's saying, there's one out there. He's crippled. He's helpless. He's hopeless. He's worthless. He's lost. And he's so far away. Forget about him. Y'all with me? And I want you to look at this. Then King David sent for him and brought him from the house of Matur, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Uh, the King James, I like it right here, it says he fetched him. Uh, he, he had him fetched, he had him brought. Can you picture the scene with me? There's uh, Mephibosheth huddled up in his little cave out in the middle of nowhere, crippled, helpless, Hopeless, lonely, afraid, condemned, impaired. Mephibosheth, you in there? No. <laughs> Mephibosheth, I know you're in there. I know where you live. Mephibosheth's not here. Mephibosheth, this is Ziba. I know it's you. Come with me. Where are we going? We're going to see the king. You're kidding. The king has called for you. He wants to see you. Why? 
I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but your grandfather tried to kill him, and now he'd like to see you. <laughs> I'm busy <laughs> this year. Come on, Mephibosheth. And he takes this crippled boy, and he brings him from the darkness in the wilderness beyond the Jordan, and he brings him into the land. And he treks the entire longitude of Israel down to the Dead Sea, then hangs a right and works his way over to Jerusalem. And then he moves into Jerusalem all the way to the center, to the house of the king. And he brings this crippled boy who was lost, helpless, hopeless, and condemned to the very presence of the good and righteous king. Does that sound familiar? Is that what God has done for us? And I don't know who the Zeba is in your life. I don't know who the, the witness is. I'm the one who, who told you the good news. Because see, when Mephibosheth was huddled up in the cave, and look, he didn't know there was good news. He just knew he was far from God and undeserving and wretched and broken and that he couldn't fix himself, and he couldn't bring hope to his own life. That's all he knew. He didn't know there was good news. He didn't know that a promise had been made. He didn't know there was a king who wasn't just just and mighty, but was good. And he didn't know that that good king had made a promise to a noble prince, and that that noble prince had laid his life down so that anyone who would come after him might be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his dear son. He doesn't know. He's a load to bar. And yet, the king sent for him. By the way, I want you to see this. He wasn't looking for David. David was looking for him. Uh, he didn't come calling. He didn't think he was worthy or deserving of any grace, uh, any reward. He was hopeless. It's unmerited favor. And when he came for him, he would have already him out of it if it wasn't forced upon him. You're coming. I'm calling you. I will bring you to my feet. And when he gets there, what does he do? And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face. That's what he does. That's what we do. When we stand before Christ, recognizing our estate, our fallen estate and our fallen nature before him, we prostrate ourselves. We lay humbly before him, knowing that our only hope would be mercy. We don't plead our case. He just, just lays there falls on his face, pays homage. And I love this moment. David says it. He says his name. David knows exactly who he is. David's known him long before. Long before he knew David. David would have known him as a little kid. David would have known him 
he would have known about the fall. He would have known of his helpless estate. He would have grieved over the little boy whose feet were crippled that was the son of this friend Jonathan. And he looks at him, fallen before him, and he says, Mephibosheth. This is a, this is a great moment. And Mephibosheth answers, behold, that's, look, I am your servant. This is not to say there's anything in me that is worthy. This is to say in my helpless and hopeless and crooked, crippled feet, in my losses and darkness, I want to say that I am yours. I want to say that you are the rightful king. Even though my granddad was king, even though my dad was prince, even though they were both killed in battle, I wanna stand before you to say, I wanna confess with my mouth that David is king and say I believe in my heart that he's Lord. That I, my life is surrendered. What can Mephibosheth bring as he lays before David? All he can bring is an acknowledgement of who David is. All, that's all, he's got nothing. He cannot bring anything in and of himself. There's nothing to show. All he can say is, you are the rightful king and you are my king. All he can do is confess his faith, place his faith in David. That's it, that's all he's got. He's brought there by the grace of God and he places his faith. He acknowledges publicly, David, you're the king. And look what David says, verse seven. Do not fear, for I will show you kindness. This is the moment he expects the ax to fall. This is the moment he expects to be executed. He expects to get what he deserves. And this is the moment where grace comes forth and showers upon him. Do not fear, I'll show you, the, I'll show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. You deserve judgment, you are going to receive kindness. Why? Because I've declared it. Not because you deserve it, because I've declared it. I'm declaring you righteous, even in the midst of your unrighteousness. Why can he do that? He can do that because he's a, he's a king who is just, but he can also, do it because there is one who has taken your place in judgment. The blood has been paid on because of your father, Jonathan, because you're in his line. By way of the gift of God through the mercy of a prince who laid aside his glory and spilled his blood for you, I'll declare you righteous by your profession of faith, even in the midst of your unrighteousness. My loving kindness has sought you out in the midst of your lostness and darkness and helplessness. I have called you by name. I have brought you to my feet. I have illumined you to the truth of who I am. And you have said, yes, I have nothing in and of myself. I am spiritually bankrupt, but you're the king. And by that profession and by virtue of the blood of a good and faithful prince in whom there is no fault, I will declare you righteous. Justification, just, justification is the term. That's the theological term. That we're justified. That we're declared righteous in the midst of our sin. It's completely undeserving. We deserve death and we receive life because of the righteousness of another. 
he who had no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And how do we get it? We were dead in our transgressions and sins. But God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in our sin. He searched for us, looking to bestow the loving kindness of God because of the gift of God, the sacrifice of his son. And in his mercy, he laid upon us and he drew us to himself. A lot of us came kicking and screaming, but he brought us to the throne room of grace. He illumined us to the truth of who he is. And we trusted him not ourselves anymore, him. And he said, righteous. You don't have to fear anymore. By the way, depending on what translation, your your Bible might say surely or I assure you or it is assuredly so. You're not only justified, you're given an assurance of your faith. You won't lose this pardon because it's not based on what you've done. It's based on what Jonathan did. Jonathan, he's he's gone. He can't lose it. He already gained for you what you could not gain for yourself, and it is finished. It's assuredly so. By the way, you think the chapter could end right there and it'd be a great story, but it gets better. And David says, and I'll restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. Not only am I gonna save you by virtue of another's righteousness, I'm gonna restore to you the land that was your father's uh, restoration. I'm gonna restore to you that which the fall stole from you. What does our sin take from us? Our sin steals our joy. It steals our peace. It steals our purpose and it steals our hope. He says, I'm not only going to save you and bestow my loving kindness, I'm not gonna save you and set you over here as a 1 Corinthians 3.18 kind of a guy who escapes the flames of hell, but that's all that can be said about your life. No, I'm gonna restore unto you the hope of your salvation. I'm gonna give you a peace that passes understanding. You're gonna have joy that's gonna be abundant. It's gonna be an abundant life now and eternal life always, and you're gonna have a purpose. You're gonna be my ambassador as I seek to reconcile a lost world to me through the mediation of a noble prince. You be my witness. We are saved and we are restored, and he doesn't stop there. And you shall eat at my table always. This is the best part. And I'm going to bring you into fellowship with me. Isn't this good? Uh, You're going to eat. The idea of eating was the idea of intimacy. You're going to have intimacy with me always. From this point forward, you won't have to live as one who's disconnected from God, who feels that sense of something's missing in the depth of your soul all of your days. And no matter what you pursue, you're still on empty. You don't have to live like that. You'll be one who is full. Matter of fact, no matter how bad your circumstances are, you know that I'll never leave you nor forsake you. You'll have me always. Gives him the promise of fellowship. And I think at this point, and by the way, why does he does it again? Jonathan's sake, David looks at Mephibosheth and he peers at him and he can see his daddy. He looks at him through the lens of Jonathan. And Jonathan loved him perfectly, we could say. And he loves Jonathan perfectly and their souls are knitted together and he sees this crippled, helpless boy through the lens of Jonathan. And all that would be true of Jonathan is now true for the little crippled boy. Can you believe that that's how God sees you and I? 
kindness. He bestows his loving kindness on us. He now sees you and I through the lens of Christ. And we have gone from helpless, hopeless, crippled enemies to those who fellowship in the very presence of the king and are co-heirs of his kingdom. Gracious. Look at the response right here. Mephibosheth, verse eight, pays homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? By the way, that is just, that's the response of a saved person. That's, that you wanna know what it looks like when you're saved, that's what it looks like. It's not, well, it's about time. It's not the likely scenario in your mind. You, 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 there's no haughtiness in your spirit. There's no look at me or look what I've done. There's complete humility. There's complete awe. There's, how could you do this for me? A dead dog, the Hebrew for that is dead dog. Like I was, I was a dog, I was a mongrel, and I was dead. I, how, why would you do, why wouldn't you do this for somebody deserving, for somebody worthy? And of course the answer is there is no one. The one who is worthy gave his life for the dead dogs. And when you are awakened to the truth of your sin in Christ and brought to the throne room of grace and illumined to the point where you say yes and you entrust your life to the king and you were declared righteous and you were restored to that which sin had stole from you and you were elevated to the fellowship of the king's table and given an assurance always, you say, why me? And you live out of that humility, you live out of that gratitude, you live out of the unbelieving nature of what God has done for you. You, you can't believe it. There's no such thing as an arrogant Christian. There's no such thing as an entitled Christian. I don't know if this is the right time to say this, but, but later in the story, Later on in, in, in Mephibosheth's life and David's life, when David's son Absalom runs him out of town trying to take over the kingdom, <laughs> foolish son, Mephibosheth stays in town um, and Ziba told a lie. David said, where's Mephibosheth? Why isn't he out here in the, in the, in the camp with me? And uh, Ziba said, well, Mephibosheth wanted to stay there and inherit his kingdom. And David, God, must have broken his heart. But it wasn't true. Ziba had lied, trying to get David's favor bestowed upon him and not Mephibosheth, trying to get Mephibosheth killed. The truth was Mephibosheth said, saddle my donkey, I'm going with David. And Ziba saddled and Ziba went. And Mephibosheth was crippled and couldn't do anything about it. And so you know what he did during Absalom's little reign, little false reign in Jerusalem? He didn't shave, he didn't bathe, he didn't take care of his feet. He publicly stood as one who was suffering for the sake of his king and his coming kingdom. He says, if my king suffers, I'll suffer. I'll deny myself. I will publicly proclaim, I'm not a part of this. And you can do to me whatever you want. I'm in his kingdom. And when David would co will come back and say, Mephibosheth, why didn't you come with me? And Mephibosheth told him the truth about why he didn't come. And Mephibosheth said, look, you may not even believe my story, and that's okay. 
If you think I'm making this up, you can kill me right now, and I've had so much more than I deserve. By the way, can you and I say that? What if you get cancer tomorrow? What if you lose your uh, nest egg somehow tomorrow? Like, like what if you, circumstances completely shift and tomorrow you lose everything? Can you bless God and say, you know what? He's already taken me from low to bar to the throne room of grace and bestowed upon me his very presence and I am so full and he will never leave me and I've got an assurance in my today and my tomorrow are secure and sure my life is in his hands he can take everything and I will still say bless him you can if and only if you know what it is to be lost and then truly saved and you're in awe that God would do this for a dead dog he owes us nothing but Mephibosheth's gonna make much of him and be committed to him in life or in death. It doesn't matter. He's already won. The victory is his. <laughs> God can give and God can take away and he's gonna say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, watch this. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belong to Saul and to his house I've given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. He doesn't stop yet, does he? Now I'm gonna sustain you. I'm gonna do for what you can't do for yourself. If you'll depend on me, see Matthew 6. It'll be a great chapter to put in your Bible. Right? Matthew 6, he knows the, the hairs on your head. He can certainly provide for your needs. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. Here's what you do. You seek first my kingdom. And all these things that you're fretting over will be given unto you. It's not a prosperity gospel, but it's saying he knows your need and he'll take care of you. And he gives you the right and the privilege of his child. You pray to me like this. God, will you give me my daily bread? And I will receive that prayer. You have the right to pray that I will care for you. I will sustain you. I will nourish you. All of your days, I'm going to take care of you. He's restored him, he's brought him into fellowship, he's raised him up, he's gonna bring provision, he's gonna meet his physical needs just like he's met his spiritual need. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons, 20 servants. Ziba said to the king, according to all that my Lord commands his servants, so your servant will do. In other words, I'll do it. And I love this, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth, is an adopted son of the king. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? Justified, given an assurance, restored, elevated, fellowship, provision, adoption. Is an adopted son. I'll care for you legally, always, and all that I have, my inheritance will legally go to you. He's gone from an enemy to a son. In verse 12, Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. You know what the word Micah means? It means who is like the Lord. And that makes sense for what Mephibosheth would name his son. He has a son and he says, your name is who is like the Lord. He stands in awe of what God has done for him. He'll never get over it. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. By the way, 
he's now among David's people. He's in David's line now. He's no longer in Saul's line, he's in David's line. He's been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his, God's beloved son. He's gone from darkness to light, from the condemned to the eternally alive. And it says he ate always at the king's table. He enjoyed the sweetness of the fellowship of God. Can we just stop and step back from this text and say, you and I, we were fallen in our state, we were fallen in our nature, we were crippled in both feet. We were helpless, we were hopeless, we were lost, we were in darkness. And we didn't know that there was good news. We didn't know of hope for the hopeless. We didn't know that a promise had been made and blood had been spilled on our behalf. And then God came after us. He sent a witness. And God quickened us, quickened us to the very threshing floor where he would separate the wheat from the tares. And he brought us to the acknowledgement of our spiritual bankruptcy before him and his holiness and his mercy and his justice and his compassion. And we saw Jesus for who he is, the rightful king, and we confessed. And that was the grace of God. And when we did, God declared us righteous in the midst of our unrighteousness. And he restored to us that which sin had stolen from us. And he brought us into right relationship with our God where that hole in our heart can be filled. And he said, I'll never leave you. Even when you're unfaithful, I'll be faithful. To the very end, you'll always eat at my table. And then he's heaped blessing upon us. And he's given us a stewardship and a purpose and he's given us a legacy and a hope and a future. God has done it for us, for his glory and for our good, because of the faithfulness and the righteousness of Jonathan. Yeho Nathan, the gift of God. The gift of God. You know how the text ends? Now he was lame in both his feet. Kind of like that. We'll always walk with a limp. We'll always walk with a limp. But you know what's great about being at the king's table? You know what's great when you've pulled up a chair under the king's table? No one can see your feet. No longer are you the crippled kid. No longer are you the failure. No longer are you forgotten. No longer are you unloved. No longer are you unwanted. From the day he calls your name forth, you're known by one thing, child of the king. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Mephibosheth. Bosheth is shame, the prefix is to take it away. This is the story of a little boy whose shame was removed by the loving kindness of God. And it's my story. 
and it's your story. Father, we're thankful. We're thankful for the loving kindness of God that sought us out of low debar, that called us by name in our helpless estate and our crippled nature. We had no hope, we had no future, and we deserved nothing but the death we would receive. And yet you brought us to your feet and you opened our eyes to who you are and you called us by name and you declared us by virtue of what Christ has done on our behalf and we say, how do you do this to a dead dog? And you don't quit. You elevate, you bless, you restore, you make us sons, you pull us up to the seat at your table, you cover our crippled feet with your kindness. God, we're in all of your grace. We can't repay you, but it's our honor to be faithfully and unashamedly yours and to proclaim your goodness all the days of our life. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.